in the hearts and minds of humanity writ large. So when the Apostle Paul begins to speak about this, and even speak about it in a, a, a language or a style that it has its own beauty, its own sort of poetic, lyrical form to it, um, and you add to that it's inspired by the Spirit of God, it, it elevates it to a level that is sort of has universal appeal. And we looked at that a little bit last week in some of our uh, introductory material in, in terms of its use as the number one passage of Scripture that's quoted at weddings, of course. Um, but, but what we want to do is we want to kind of make sure that we're studying this beautiful, no, no doubt beautiful passage of Scripture, no doubt unique passage of Scripture. We want to make sure we are studying it and understanding it within the context that's, that it's written. Um, it's, it's obviously... It obviously, as we said last week, it possesses this captivating literary style, and it definitely is conveying some of the most sublime truth in all of Scripture, but it also is found within a larger context of this letter, this actual letter that was written to actual believers in an actual locale in the first century. And we want to make sure that we understand it from that perspective. Uh, just to kind of highlight the, the nature of this passage in its, in its form, the Pillar New Testament commentary says this, the passage has been referred to as a hymn or a prose hymn, not because it was to be sung, but in recognition of its lofty, exalted prose. It is clearly marked by rhetorical amplification by which Paul takes what could have been stated in one or two concise prose clauses and slows down his argumentative and topical progression to a near stop in order to develop this expanded and elaborate tribute to love. So this commentator is sort of capturing what we find in 1 Corinthians. Yes, the way that it is written and the subject matter almost brings us to a stop in the flow of this letter and in the flow of this subject matter. It, it slows us down. And it, it captivates our attention. But it's also in the context of this letter that, that you find the elements that have been existent throughout this section in play as well. And we alluded to that last week. It's interesting when you begin to look at the details in 1 Corinthians 13 and you do slow down and begin to consider what it's actually saying. It is filled with correction, just like the rest of 1 Corinthians is. Just like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has been. It's just corrective in a style and corrective around a subject that captivates us, that draws us in, that, that gets our attention. And it is very different and distinct in terms of the flow of, of the letter itself. You see there in chapter 12, verse 31, as we alluded to last week, this really begins at the conclusion of chapter 12, and he says there, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Well, the implication in that phrase alone is that the way in which you have been conducting yourselves is not characterized by this more excellent way that I now need to show you. So even the transition verse from chapter 12 into chapter 13 is an introduction of some correction of their thinking and their conduct. This is the more excellent way of love that the Apostle Paul is going to be introducing. And the fact of the matter is, is that when we come to this section, we obviously have a certain resonance with the subject matter because, of course, like what has been illustrated in what we see in our culture writ large, in all kinds of manifestations and all kinds of literature and all kinds of music and, and cinema, and, and everything imaginable that, that might be the artifacts of our, not just our artifacts of our contemporary culture, but artifacts of human history, this, this matter, this principle, or this virtue of love, it resonates with us because we are created in the image of God, and God, in His essence, is love. That's what Scripture tells us. That's what John, for example, tells us. That, that's how God is characterized in Scripture. That it's not just that God is loving, though He is. 
It's that He is, in essence, love. For Him to love is for Him to function or act or conduct Himself according to His very nature. This is very much akin to His other attributes. When you think of the justice of God, God's acts and His words and His will are just because He is, by His very essence, just. He does not ascertain justice and then operate according to it. He is himself just. Well, the same is true with the fact that he is love. He is characterized by love. He he is essentially love. And so therefore, he has created us in his image. And a part of that image-bearing reality for us is that we know something of love. We know something of God who is love, and so therefore we know something of love. The fact of the matter is as well that we live in a fallen body and in a fallen and corrupt world where that very thing has also been corrupted. And so we find ourselves, even though we resonate with this high virtue of love, naturally, and even more so spiritually if we have been redeemed, we resonate with it because we know that love in its purest form and in its purest expressions on a human level is extremely broken. It's broken in our own expressions toward others, and it's broken in our own reception from others. We have both been guilty of demonstrating extreme lacks of love towards other people, and we have also received the same kinds of extreme acts of unloving conduct, speech, action, or whatever. So we, we understand, we have this deep resonance with both an, a, an essential nature of love that resides in God, though marred in, in our fallenness, but we also resonate with it because we long for love, we feel the guilt of of uh, brokenness in our expressions of love, that we have the people that we claim to love are the people that we often hurt the most, right? That whole cliche, that whole euphemism. But we've also been on the receiving end of disappointment by those who claim to love us but are not behaving according to what we think we understand as a standard of love, as something that's transcendent. It's not something that is man-made. In our fallenness as well, this principle of love has been corrupted in all manner of sensuality or uh, appeasement or gratification of our selfish desires. And so insofar as that becomes prominent in the heart and mind of any human, uh, then their sense of what it means to love or to be loved is often centered around individual and often very selfish gratification, even in our expressions of what appear to be magnanimous, in our fallen state, those expressions can often be motivated by some kind of self-centered end. I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to exhibit. I'm going to do for another in this magnanimous way that's going to give me some kind of payback, some kind of benefit in return, whether it's a benefit of reputation, whether it's some kind of you know, tit-for-tat favor I'm looking for from someone else, that we, we often can find ourselves longing for something pure and true in this virtue of love, and yet we find ourselves often subject to or even perpetrators of a selfish counterfeit of this virtue of love that the Apostle Paul is going to teach us about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, we talked about this last week, and what we see in this chapter as he is describing both what love is, what love does, what love, when it's absent, what the absence of love looks like, what love is characterized by, the nature of love, even though he's going to be teaching us all these things, what he's really speaking about is what it means to be a truly redeemed 
genuinely spiritual person. And this has been the thrust of the entire letter. There is this, this dichotomy that you see all throughout 1 Corinthians, this, this contrast between those who are manifesting characteristics of someone who is truly spiritual versus those who are manifesting characteristics of someone who is not truly spiritual. They are worldly, but they claim to be spiritual. They do what they do. They say what they say. They behave in the ways they behave under the guise of some version of spirituality, but it's a counterfeit. And that's the dichotomy that you see running throughout this entire letter. So what we're going to see as we continue to study this is that he is, he is putting in front of the Corinthians and putting in front of us what is not just a vision of this more excellent way, this highest of all virtues, but he's putting in front of us what it actually looks like for one to walk in the Spirit. For one to actually conduct themselves and to live and to speak in ways that are a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, you might say. Of course, we know this from Galatians chapter 5. The, the fruit of the Spirit rattles off these different virtues that are characteristic of or that emanate from the Spirit who resides in us. And the first one is love. There's love and there's joy and there's peace. All these manifestations or evidences of the Spirit's residency in the, in the heart, in the soul, in the, in the mind, in the body of the truly redeemed believer, the first virtue that is mentioned as evidence of the presence of the Spirit is love. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is going to be speaking to us not just about lofty ideals, but about fundamental and essential realities are, that are to be characteristic of the true believer who is genuinely walking in the Spirit. And as we've noted, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 is all about the Spirit and what the Spirit has done to both call people and gift people and bring them into a body in the diversity of their gifts with common unity and common purpose according to His plan and His sovereign will. This is all about how we manifest that we are people of the Spirit. And preeminent amongst everything that you could identify is love. Preeminent. If you think back to Jesus, what is referred to as his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. This, this, is, this, is, his, this is his prayer to the Father. Where he, he, is, he is on the downhill slope of his earthly ministry. And he is headed toward the cross. And he is headed toward this act of the most vivid and profound expression of love. And giving his life as a ransom to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. To take our sin on himself. He is on that path and what he is praying in that prayer is that those who are my disciples, those who are my sheep, those who are my people, might they be one? Might they be characterized by this kind of love? So that the world might know that you sent me. This is the, this is the consummate evidence of genuine salvation and genuine life in the Spirit. This principle, this virtue of love. So we need to be looking at this, and, and, and we need to be intrigued and captivated by its language, and we need to be inspired by its ideals, but we need to be also examined, tested by what it shows us, and what we see in ourselves that might be lacking. And this certainly is the corrective in view for the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is going after them for what is ultimately their, their lack of love. Now, I want to give you sort of an outline of the entire chapter that we'll be sort of following as we continue on. I didn't do that last week, and I, I want to kind of circle back and provide that for you because it's going to, it's going to serve as sort of the... the um, the tracks that we're going to try to, to run on as we, as we continue to walk through this. Really just three broad outline points that we'll then kind of work our way through with some sub points underneath them. But the first 
section that we started looking at last week, we're really, with, we're really dealing with the broad subject of what I'm just calling the diminishing effects of love's absence. The diminishing effects of love's, absen- love's absence. This is verses, excuse me, this is verses 1 through 3. And then the next section we'll address, I'm just going to call the active evidences of love's presence. The active evidences of love's presence. And then I'm just wrapping this final section. That's verses 4 through 7, by the way. And then I'm wrapping this final section in verses 8 through 13 under the heading of the incomparable value of love's endurance. The incomparable value of love's endurance. So that's our broad outline. Now, last week we began looking at sort of our first sub-point under this first outline heading, the diminishing effects of love's absence. And we started with sort of our first sub-point, uh, that just really, that just, I would state it this way, that impressive lofty words are fruitless and distracting if they're without love. Or you could say they're counterproductive if they are without love. And this is verse 1, where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In fact, let's read the entire section together uh, before we get started. I should have done that here at the outset. We're going to read the first three verses together, and then we'll kind of move back into our outline. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So obviously this first section addresses this matter of speech. He's dealing with this this issue of speaking in tongues. And he is drawing back into this discussion about love, some of the spiritual gifts, and more specifically, some of the gifts that were of a greater controversy or a source of greater division or evidences in the way that they were demonstrated or manifested in the life of the church. They were evidences more of lack of love than they were evidences of the presence of love in the life of the Corinthian church. And so he begins with this, this matter of, of speech, of words that are spoken. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And we talked last week about how this is just this starkly contrasting imagery that he's painting for us here. And of course... He's speaking about this, this gift of tongues, but when he talks about the tongues of men, it's, it's likely a reference to the gift of languages as an actual spiritual gift, but it's probably more a rebuke of what was the counterfeit of that, which was the, these, ecstatic, these ecstatic utterances that weren't known to man and there was no one to interpret and it was just gibberish. And in fact... It was quite likely a carryover from some of their pagan worship practices. It was it's probably more along those lines. But nevertheless, he's, using, he's, not, he's not trying to sort of elucidate more on this gift of tongues. He's merely giving two examples of forms of speech that would have been in the minds of the Corinthians and are to be uh, illustrative to us or examples to us of something of a magnificent form, of of some kind of incredible exhibition of speech. So whether it's whether it's the the gift of tongues, whether it's some kind of divine oration, where it's only by God's work and by God's spirit that someone would be able to utter these things. They are speaking things that there's no way that they would know what they're saying. It's only God speaking through them would be the idea. Or this tongues of angels references, you know, think of, think of the, 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 the function of angels as we see it in Scripture as messengers. They bring the, the actual divine proclamation to bear on humanity when they show up. They come, in essence, I mean, I'm, obviously I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have the geography of all this dialed in in my mind, but the, they come from the throne room of God, let's say with a divine message from God to be proclaimed to humanity. And as we see these, these, messenger, these messengers speak, 
they are speaking, one of the first things that they always say is what? Fear not. When an angel shows up on the pages of Scripture or in the presence of a human, it is a paralyzing, fear-inducing experience. Before they can even bring their message, they have to calm the recipient down and, 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 and try to bring peace so that they can actually hear the message. So the idea here is to elevate in our minds. This We're talking about if you were to be able to speak divinely, he could also be referencing the sort of the oratorical uh, fascination that was commonplace in that day where people were, they were given to, you know, feats of oratory and being able to get in some kind of public space and deliver some kind of speech and use impressive rhetoric and kind of woo people with their ability to weave things together uh, um, in, in their argumentation or in their, in their articulation of things. But it's this, it's this picture of extreme, impressive speech. And, and it's speech nonetheless. That's the point. What he's focusing on is speech. And he says that if I'm able to do that, then the net result of what would be perceptibly all that impressive oratory, all of that divine Locution, all of that impressive intonation, all of that lyrical beauty, whatever it might be, in spite of all of that, if it is absent love, it is not just noise, it is irritating, discordant, incoherent, noise, unfruitful, unuseful, noise. If it's, if it's absent love. That's the point. And I like what MacArthur said about that. We mentioned this last time. The greatest truths spoken in the greatest way fall short if they are not spoken in love. And that's the point he's making here. So that's the ground that we sort of covered last week. Now let's move on to this next point. We have this, this principle of, of words, lofty words... Absent love are fruitless and distracting. This next point is that impressive, prominent people are nothing without love. Impressive, prominent people are nothing without love. That's verse 2. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing, he says. Now, obviously, in verse 1, as we've already seen, the clear focus is upon speech. Words that are verbalized by one who is speaking and another who is audibly hearing them. The focus is clearly on speech, on oratory. And when love is absent, those words that are spoken, no matter how lofty or impressive, are diminished to just noise. That's what he's talking about. But here in verse 2, the focus seems to be centered not on some act or some manifestation, but on the person himself. Rather than the person, what the person is saying or what the person is doing, but on who the person is. Because if you notice the consequence of love's absence in the second principle, the second point, is this extreme form of personal diminishment. I am nothing, he says. If I do this, then it's not that the thing that I'm doing is diminished to nothing. It's that I am nothing. This this is going after this idea of the prominent person. He he is giving us a profile, if you will, of of this prominent type of person. Now, within the context of this instruction, of course, he, he is drawing upon these spiritual gifts. He continues to employ some, some of these references to specific gifts, but he's, he's referring to them with an extreme manifestation of giftedness. Again, using this hyperbolic language, this exaggerated language to make his point. But the issue here, as I said, is not, 
is, is not how the absence of love impacts the gifts. It's this devastating truth that Paul's emphasizing here, how the absence of love actually impacts the person. That's what he's talking about. Again, using this exaggerated language to illustrate this extreme loss that occurs when love is absent. What he does here is he produces what we might just call a portrait of the consummate, miracle-working prophet-teacher. Now, some, some, when they kind of, some commentators, they take every little piece of this and they sort of break it down into its component parts and they say, well, you know, the gift of prophecy was like this and so he's elevating it to this kind of level and all that kind of thing, which is fine. That's one way to sort of, I guess, you know, in a meticulous, detailed way, exegete the passage. But the way that this, I think, is, is more, I guess, more, what, what, I, what I've tried to do is I kept looking at this and thinking about this and studying this, is I, I'm trying to think about this as though I am in first century Corinth, as though I've been the recipient of all this other information. And what we know that was extant in first century Corinth in the church there that he has gone after is this existence of these, quote unquote, prominent people. This this profile of the impressive, prominent, spiritually elite, socially elite person in the life of the church. And so I think that he's drawing in manifestations of prominent, public, impressive giftedness to create for us a profile of that kind of person in its extreme and exaggerated form. He speaks of one who has prophetic powers to understand all mysteries. This, this would be a reference to divine truth that has not yet been revealed. So this is the person we're talking about. We're talking about the person who has the capacity or the ability or the, has been given the gift to not just understand certain mysteries that have yet to be revealed, but all mysteries that have yet to be revealed. And... All knowledge. So you have this this dual power here, this dual exhibition of impressiveness in view here. You have the ability to understand what has not yet been revealed yet, the mysteries, but also all knowledge. So what has been revealed, all facts, all information, everything that is apprehendable by human, the human mind, human understanding. So, if you're getting the picture here, we're talking about an impressive, prominent person. Someone who possesses an understanding of everything that is not yet known and has comprehensive understanding of everything else that is known or can be apprehended by the mind of man. And not only that, but this person has what you just might call uh, a faith, sort of an unmatched faith that enables miracle-working power of of a magnitude that is hard to imagine. And he kind of draws in, you know, Jesus' reference to this faith that can move mountains. So this person has that faith. So while Jesus is teaching his disciples about their lack of faith and saying, look, If you had just the faith of a mustard seed, you would be able to say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would be so. He's teaching them that, listen, I'm trying to get you to understand the power of who is in your presence. The power, the very power of God. That the smallest amount of faith is exhibited in power because of the object of that faith and his power. And his ability to execute power. Where in this case, the Apostle Paul is saying, no, let's just go ahead and assume. Here's the man. In fact, I'm the man. He's using first person pronouns. I'm the man. Imagine I'm the man who can fathom all mysteries, everything that's not yet been revealed, and all knowledge, everything that can be apprehended by human understanding. And not only that, but I can exhibit a kind of faith that would impress Anyone, the the kind of faith that that has a monumental kind of power associated with it. 
This is the exaggerated profile of a prominent and likely genuinely impressive person who possesses knowledge and ability to actually do genuinely impressive things. In other words, when you look at 1 Corinthians and when you think about our our own experience, I mean, there are people who are impressive. There are people who are really, really smart. They're very articulate or they're very strong or they're very influential or they're very sociable and they have an ability to, to draw people into relationships. I mean, there are impressive people all around us. You might be one of those impressive people, but I hope you don't have a big sense of that. But nevertheless, you understand there's, there is really impressive people. So he's not speaking. He's exaggerating the idea of the image, but he's not saying that there's no such thing as people who can do impressive things or conduct themselves publicly in impressive ways. He's giving us the most extreme vision of that kind of prominent and impressive person who can do impressive things. And then he says, if this person can do these things, but they do them without love, this is the person who is utterly and completely brought to nothing when they exhibit their impressive qualities and abilities without love. This is is a test for us, but it's also a call for discernment on our part. That we, we want to be around, we want to be characterized as, we want to be led and influenced by people who are preeminently exhibiting the virtue of godly love. And whatever gifts they have and whatever abilities they have that are indeed impressive, we need to be making sure that we are not being influenced by that alone. That we're not being swayed by that alone. That we're discerning, is there love here? Is there genuine love that is only wrought by the Spirit of God being demonstrated here? This ought to be a a test for us personally. It ought to be a a way for us to examine others that we might be influenced by as they have unique abilities and gifts. Because the consequence couldn't be more dire. The, the, The verdict that is rendered here on that kind of person, the kind of person who can manifest that kind of impressive competency in some way, giftedness in some way, but they do it absent the love of God, the the abiding fruit of love of the Spirit. It's not just that all of their impressive acts and words and leadership and influence, it's not just that all that is diminished. It's that they are considered nothing in view of all that. And you'll notice that Paul, as I said before, he is employing first-person pronouns throughout this entire section. He says, if I can do this, if I can speak this way, he no doubt knows that he doesn't need to look any further than himself. He doesn't need to look any further than his own history and his own testimony to affirm his deep understanding of this principle. Turn with me for a moment to Philippians chapter 3. I want to look at this together. This is a really, I think, it's very revealing and fascinating and I think super instructive section of Scripture. This, this section picks up Paul's sort of caution. He's warning the Philippians to be on guard against the Judaizers, which was sort of a problem uh, in a number of places during his ministry. These people who typically they were professing Jewish believers or they were proselytes of Jewish believers who would go around in their teaching and they would insist that the saving gospel of Christ also had to be accompanied by observance to Jewish law, Jewish custom, things like circumcision, Sabbath keeping, 
you know, the Jewish festivals, dietary restrictions, that, 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 that all of these Jewish law customs had to be adhered to as part of actually being a Christian. That those things have not gone away. Those haven't been subsumed in the New Covenant. And they haven't been fulfilled in Christ, but those are to be carried forward. And so he's, he's cautioning them against this kind of belief because it, it undermines the nature of the gospel of Christ by faith alone and grace alone to the glory of God alone and not by works so that no man can boast. So he was on this quite regularly because it was such a damning heresy. But listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Because he is not just upset with the Judaizers. He knows what they're about. He was a Pharisee. He, he knows what this is all about. And so that we get a little bit of that, that personal resume in Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And I'm also going to pick up verse 1 of chapter 4. So just hang in there with me. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord. Um, No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but put no confidence in the flesh. Again, that reference to the Judaizers who are saying you have to be circumcised if you want to be a true believer. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You're looking for an impressive person. That was me. But then look what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way and... If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And then listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You're starting to get the picture? This is the profile that the Apostle Paul is saying should be characteristic of those who really understand that everything that we thought was gain for us, everything that we believed was a credit to us, everything that others would even say is a credit to us or that makes us impressive is rubbish. And I count it as loss. And that work of sanctification and redemption that is working out in me by the Spirit of God, I'm saying to you, follow my example. Imitate me as I seek to imitate Christ. And oh, by the way, do you have any idea how much I love you? 
Can you see it? Now, I love the language that he employs here as he's speaking to these beloved and cherished brothers and sisters in Philippi because he says, I love you and I long for you and my, you are my joy and my crown. Like he, he speaks to this love in effusive tones and terms. And then he concludes, he says, stand firm in this, my beloved. So when the Apostle Paul is speaking of this profile of the prominent and impressive person, and when he makes this this stark, almost seemingly overly exaggerated statement that that kind of person who is manifesting that kind of impressive giftedness absent love is brought to nothing, he is not exaggerating that. Because he knows that. He has walked that. He understands that. So anyone that would consider themselves worthy of emulation, worthy of admiration, worthy of being followed, but they do not have this kind of love, they are to be considered not just as unworthy to be followed, but they are to be considered as nothing. This is a, a stark characterization of what happens or what the consequence is of the absence of love when this is the kind of profile that you have going on in the life of the church. So you have this impressive and lofty words are fruitless and distracting without love. And you have these impressive and prominent people who are nothing without love. And then this last point in this section is that impressive sacrificial acts profit nothing without love. He says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So he's just continuing to layer on these, all these different examples of manifest impressiveness, of something that would compel other people or even the person manifesting these things themselves to, to, to gain some kind of credit or credibility, some kind of notoriety, some kind of spiritual status. And here he moves to something that is maybe not necessarily as upfront and prominent in its exhibition, though probably it likely was in, its, in, in, in Paul's thinking. But it's this idea of being oriented towards sacrificial giving. The, the actual term here about, about giving away all I have, it, it actually means to sort of incrementally and over time just divvy out all of your, all of your stuff. So it's almost like this, this systematic, you know, bit by bit, giving out all I have. And I'm willing to just sacrifice all of it. And, and even to the point of delivering up my body. Interesting uh, little note here. Um, who has uh, a different translation than ESV? Who has uh, NASB maybe? Does anybody have, who, who, who's, who says something different there? Um, it, Okay, that's the same. What? Yeah. So there's there's a there's a there's a uh, textual variant, as they call it. And, you know, I'm going to put on my Greek expert hat, and it, just consider it like a clown hat because that's what it actually is to call myself a Greek expert. But there is a textual variant here. That's why you have uh, some translations opting for delivering up my body to be burned, as the ESV does, and other translations, NASB and others, I think. But then you have, for example, the NIV. I'm not sure what version you have, but I think that there's a few other translations uh, that have the same general sense as, as what was just read. The NIV says this, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So you have, those are very different kind of images. One is to give over my body to some kind of hardship that I may boast, and this is, in the ESV, is to deliver up my body to be burned. 
um, just not to go too deep in the weeds, but uh, there is um, there's credible evidence, and there's still disagreement on this, but there's credible evidence, textual evidence, that the, the correct translation would be uh, sort of giving my body over to hardship so that I may boast. It has this idea of boasting. And the reason is, is that there's a, they, they say that there's a, there was a scribal error. It's, it was one letter in the Greek term that if you change that letter, or you take that letter out, it changes the word to something else. So it goes from the idea of being burned to the idea of boasting. So that one scribal error could result in a different translation, if you will, of, of those terms. There's enough evidence on both sides, as far as I've been able to tell, that you could reliably argue for, for both. I think that the actual thrust of the meaning of the text doesn't get altered too much by that. Because the idea, again, is this use of hyperbolic language, of exaggeration to make a point. That, that if, I, if I demonstrate sacrificial acts that would even involve my own body being given up in some way like my own person, my own physical person, like the, the nth degree of self-sacrifice. And if I do that, and I'm also relinquishing everything that I own, I, I'm, I'm in a sort of a public kind of way, I'm giving up everything that I own in some impressive and, and extreme act of self-sacrifice, but I'm doing that without love, it profits me nothing. nothing. This term is a term translated gain in the ESV. It's a term for profiting. It's a term for having a return. And, you know, this probably is the Apostle Paul sort of alluding to principles of like sowing and reaping, or it's better to give than to receive. And, and you could also uh, hear echoes of, of uh, Jesus teaching in the Gospels about the Pharisees who like to they like, to, they like to be known in their, what they're giving, right? They, they, wanna, they want the, the coins to jingle. They, they want the, it to be heard. And Jesus will tell them, you don't need to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give. So there's this, there's this common thread or truth principle that you find in the Gospels and the teachings of Christ. And, of course, with the Apostle Paul that has to do with this, this blessing of giving, this, this blessedness of self-sacrifice. And in fact, as we talked about last week, the very essence of this term that is used over and over again in this passage for love is the idea of self-sacrifice. It is, it, that is what distinguishes the kind of love that he is speaking of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from the other Greek terms or Greek conceptions of love that we would equate with love in, in our contemporary culture, uh, sort of an erotic uh, attraction kind of love or a more of a, a friendship kind of love. Those are different words in the Greek. We sort of roll them all up into one, one word. But this, this, uh, this agape is the kind of self-sacrificial love. It's the kind that is characterized by self-sacrifice. Jesus speaks of loving your neighbor, and even demonstrating that love by doing good to them, even though they persecute you. Well, that's, that's not normal. I don't know if you've noticed that. You guys are looking at me like you're so spiritual that you do this all the time. I know you don't. He is talking about the kind of love that only the Spirit can produce in the believer when he speaks of loving your enemies, this kind of self-sacrificial love. So he's even putting this in the context of personal sacrifice that becomes empty and void. You basically nullify this sacrificial understanding of love when you are personally sacrificing absent that kind of genuine self-sacrificial loving motive. That's the idea. And so the result is you gain nothing. There is no return. You, you may feel good about yourself. You may have even others think well of you for doing these things. But you are gaining nothing if you're doing it absent love. Now, for those of you that are, uh, 
have been contributing to our building project, can I just make a statement? Um, don't, don't say I've got to conjure up love before you give your next gift to the building project. We've got to finish this thing. Uh, I, I say that obviously in jest. The, the principle here is not that we... we there's, a, there's a little bit of a tension here, in this, I think, in this passage. Because you have to ask the question, well, where is the intersection between just duty when you don't necessarily know if you're doing it with the right motives, okay? We just have to kind of cast this back into the broader context. And what we're talking about here is we're talking about people in the life of the church who are demonstrating a pattern or an inclination towards some kind of public recognition. Public recognition. In other words, they are exhibiting characteristics of what they think are spiritual qualities, uh, godly or Christ-like qualities, but they're doing it because they want to be recognized for it. That's the principle that's in play here. So the idea here is that when we do this, there is no profit for us if we, if we give or sacrifice in these ways. And obviously this testimony that we see from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, this was something that he understood deeply because he was living profoundly. He had, in other words, the, the language that you see in Philippians is the language of the accountant. In the same way that you have this language of profiting as a result of sacrificing, of making some kind of personal sort of sacrificial, you might call it investment, in the kingdom of God or in the life of another person. You're making these sacrifices and there is spiritual gain. There's spiritual reward from that. We don't always know what it's going to be. We don't always know how it's going to be quantified. But we just know that the Lord is, is he blesses those who, are, who live sacrificially. This is about sort of a, a dollar for dollar kind of idea of looking for a return on someone's investment. Because it's like, don't you see what I've done? Did you see what all I was willing to sacrifice? Shouldn't that equate to some kind of merit? Well, the Apostle Paul in Philippians is using the same kind of sort of general accounting language because he says, I, I've counted it. I, I've, I've counted this up. I've tallied it up. All of these things that were sort of in my credit ledger, it's rubbish. It is not worth anything. And what is worth something is that I might share in the sufferings of Christ. In my exhibitions of genuine Spirit-produced love for the brethren and sacrificing even my very physical body for your well-being and for the spread of the gospel, that is gain. For me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this idea of genuine embodiment of the life of the Spirit of Christ himself who demonstrated this kind of sacrificial love is what the Apostle Paul is putting on display for us and saying, absent this kind of love, all of your sacrificial acts are not worth anything. They profit you nothing. We'll we'll pray and we'll move forward in our outline next week as we begin to look at the evidences of love's presence.